All right, so we're going to start tonight by reading our passage, and our passage for the evening is Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some at the end of each row, and you'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles on page 819. Again, we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouths in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you that by your spirit you inspired Matthew to write these words down. God, we ask that tonight that that same Spirit would open our minds and open our hearts so that we can understand the message that you have for us in Matthew's words. God, we ask that, Lord, you would move us to action. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in our passage tonight, in these, these two little verses, we kind of get to the, the halfway point in uh, Matthew chapter 13. There are eight parables in the 13th chapter of Matthew, and up to this point we've covered four of those. We covered the parable of the sower, which is all about uh, our response to the gospel, both initially and in an ongoing basis. We talked about the parable of the weeds, which talks about the fact that the kingdom of heaven is going to grow in the world in in the midst of an enemy who's trying to stop it, and that our responsibility as citizens of that kingdom is to, to live in the world righteously and missionally in the face of that enemy. The past two weeks in Matthew, we've covered two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, which are both two parables in which Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to to two things that are unexpected. And those two things go to demonstrate the fact that the kingdom of heaven's growth is going to be dramatic, it's going to be inevitable, and it's going to be all-encompassing. It's going to affect everything. But tonight, in this, this, this halfway point in the 13th chapter of Matthew, we don't have any parables. Instead, we get a a little more explanation from Matthew about why Jesus speaks in parables. And Matthew insists in in these verses that, that one of the reasons why Jesus speaks in parables has something to do with prophecy. And what we're going to see as we go through our passage tonight is we're going to see that that God's people find God's ultimate act of redemption in Christ. God's people find God's ultimate act of redemption in Christ. Jesus is God's ultimate act of redemption. That's, that's the main point of tonight's passage. That's what we're going to see as we, we move through Matthew 13, as we move through the, this, this prophecy that he talks about. And in order to get there, we need to ask two questions about this passage. The first question we need to ask is we need to find out what what the connection is between Matthew 13 and prophecy. There's some connection that Matthew is telling us about between Matthew 13, 34, and 35 and prophecy. So we need to figure out what that connection is. And the second thing we need to do is we need to find out what that connection means for us. Today, here, 
in this place. And so we're going to start answering the first question by looking at verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. So here, Matthew's just telling us that that Jesus speaks to the people in parables. Whenever he speaks to the crowds, he uses parables. But here, we, we might misunderstand what Matthew is telling us. Sometimes people read this where where it says, he said nothing to them without a parable. And they take that to mean that the only thing Jesus said to the people were parables. But that's not what Matthew's talking about. This would just be like if I said, whenever Matt Campbell leads worship, he sings hymns. I do not mean that every single song that Matt sings is a hymn. I mean that whenever he leads worship one of those songs is going to be a hymn. And that's exactly what, what, what Matthew's phrase means. It doesn't mean that, that the only thing that Jesus ever says to the crowds are parables, because, because we see him say other stuff in the Gospels. What it means is that whenever he does speak to people about the kingdom of heaven, he's going to use a parable in that statement. It's not going to be the only thing he says, but it's going to be part of what he says. And he tells us why Jesus does this in verse 35. So this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, whenever we're reading our Bibles and, and we come to a, a passage like this in Scripture where it's clear by how the Bible's laid out that this is a quote, we're all forced to make a choice when we read. We, we can decide we're going to, to try to figure out what that quote means. We're going to try to understand it. We're, we're, we're going to want to learn something from what the author is telling us, or we can just kind of ignore it and keep on reading. The first option, seek to understand, or the second option, which is just be lazy. So the first one, what we would do is we would try to find out where the quote's from. We would, we would read the quoted passage. We would try to understand what it is that the author is trying to tell us through that quote. For the second one, we would just keep on reading and hope that further down the page there's something that's easier for us to understand. And we'd miss what the author wants to tell us. Obviously, we're going to go with the first option tonight. We're not going to be lazy even though it's Father's Day. And so this is, this is the first question. What is the connection between, between Matthew 13 and this prophecy that he quotes? And that first option is how we find that answer. We, we, we figure out where the quote's from, we read the quote, and we try to understand what it is that Matthew wants to tell us by using that. And in order to do this, we need to, to, to read and look at those, those tiny little letters in our Bibles that we normally ignore. And so in my Bible, right, right before where the quote is, if I look there, there's a, there's a tiny little letter F. If I move over to the center column, I find that there's another little F there, and it tells me, cited from Psalm 78.2. If you're using a, a pew Bible, you have a tiny little letter B that tells you where it is, and it's at the bottom of the page. If you're somebody who has a Bible that, that doesn't give you any clue where the quote's from, then you just have a lazy person Bible and need to get a new one. So, these, these things tell us where this quote is from. They tell us that Matthew is quoting Psalm 78 too. 
And Matthew's doing this because he wants us to show us something. And so we're going to go there and, and we're going to read this quoted passage. And notice that I said we're going to read the quoted passage. We're, we're not going to read the quoted verse. Because whenever an author from the New Testament quotes a, a verse or quotes a passage, they're not just talking about one verse. They're, they're talking about a link between the text that they're at and the text that they got it from. Not just, not just one verse, but, but a whole passage of Scripture with its context that has meaning that was conveyed by the, the original author. That's what they're pointing at. They're not pointing at one, one simple word or one simple thing in the passage. And so we're going to read the whole passage that Matthew is referring to. But before we do that, I want to address one more question. Because you might be wondering why. Why, why should we do this work? Why, why should we not take the easy way out? Why should we go back and, and read this, this chunk from, from what we know is the kind of more boring part of the Bible? I mean, after all, we're, we're all busy, right? I mean, for, I know for me, and I'm sure for most of you, some days it's, it's all we can do to find time to read the Bible. And, and when we do, when we get that time with the Word, we, we don't want it to feel like a homework lesson. We don't want it to feel like a research project. We want it to, to be full of meaning. We want it to be alive. We want it to, to impact our lives. But we're not going to find that by skipping stuff. We're going to find that by, by studying what the author really wants to teach us because it's when we do those things that the Bible comes alive to us. I mean, think about what, what's happening here. The Bible is, is one big book that's made up of, of 66 smaller books. And within those 66 smaller books, there are chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters of smaller stories. So there's one big story made up of 66 smaller stories, which are made up of even smaller stories. It's written by, by over 40 different guys over a period of generations and generations and generations. And so when, when, when a guy like Matthew reaches back hundreds of years to point to something that some guy wrote down in a different place and in a different time, he's not doing it just because he's trying to make a, a page limit for his gospel. He, he's quoting this guy because there is something there that he wants us to see. And it's, and it's when we see these connections... It's when we, we read them and when we learn them and experience them for ourselves that, that we see how gracious our God is to give us this book. This isn't homework. This is the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in the people of God through the Word of God. That's what happens when, when we do this work, when we read the Bible and really seek to, through the Spirit, understand what it means. And so that, that's why we're going to do this tonight. We're not going to do this because it's, it's, it's just work. We're going to do this because it's how God intended us to use this book. And so if you would, turn with me to Psalm 78. And we're going to see what it is that Matthew wants to teach us by quoting this psalm in his gospel. And this is a long psalm that we're going to read, so hang in there. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. 
He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zon. He divided the sea and let them pass through it, and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zon. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. 
He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned for them a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So that's a long song. And it it covers a whole lot of topics. But what we need to do is we need to find the connection between between this song that that covers these, these various topics in Matthew 13. But I've got to tell you that most people don't think there is one. Most people don't think there's a connection between Matthew 13 and Psalm 78. And, and this isn't me just saying this to, to make this more dramatic. This is, this is a line right out of D.A. Carson's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. He says this, Contemporary New Testament scholars almost universally agree that Matthew has taken Psalm 78 to badly out of context. Contemporary New Testament scholars almost universally agree that Matthew has taken Psalm 78-2 badly out of context. What he means is that people, scholars who have, who have devoted their lives to studying the New Testament, think that what Matthew has done here is he, he's gone back to Psalm 78-2 and he's just ripped it out of context. And just in case you don't know, taking something out of context means to, to take a, a section of Scripture or, or a little, little bitty piece of Scripture and, and give it meaning or give it an understanding which, which does not match what the author originally intended it to mean. For example, if you've ever received more than one uh, Christian greeting card, one of those probably had Jeremiah 29.11 on it. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. But what the greeting card doesn't tell you is that what the Lord was talking about is, is a future and a hope that was 70 years in the future. And most of those people were dead 
when it happened. So despite what, what greeting cards might promise us, Jeremiah 29.11 does not mean that the, the near future for us will be full of sunshine and rainbows. It means something else. Jeremiah 29.11 is taken out of context all the time. And, and that's exactly what, what these New Testament scholars think that, that Matthew has done with Psalm 78.2. But we need to find the connection. And in order to, to find this connection, we need to ask two more questions. We need to ask, why do these scholars think that? And why are they wrong? They think this for two reasons. The first reason is because of Psalm 78.3, which we'll read in just a second. And the second reason is because of the purpose of the parables in Matthew 13. So, Matthew quotes Psalm 78.2, which we read, I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings from of old. So what it seems like Matthew is referring to when he, when he goes back and he quotes this passage is he's referring to the fact that the psalmist says that he's going to speak hidden things, dark sayings, things which, which aren't known, things which aren't clear, things which, which haven't yet had light shown on them. That's why they're, they're dark or hidden, because they're not clear. But these scholars say the problem with that is, is the next verse, which says, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So there's these, these hidden things which, which aren't known that in the very next verse he says are known. People have told us about them. The whole, the whole purpose of this psalm is that this, this, these, these hidden things would be communicated to the future generation so that they know about them. But when we take that and we compare it to Matthew 13, what we see there is something a little different. They'll go back to the first part of Matthew 13, which we covered a couple weeks ago, where the, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And in 13.11, he answers them. And he says this. He says, To you, to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Essentially, Jesus is saying to the disciples, I, I speak to the crowds in parables because they don't get to know what the disciples get to know. He, he speaks in parables in order to, to hold back, to conceal, or to hide information from the people. All the people don't get to know these things. And so that's why he says he speaks in parables. And so the, the scholars will, will take that in Psalm 78 and they'll say, this guy's talking about stuff that people are supposed to know. That, that, that's, that's supposed to be made known. But Jesus in Matthew 13 is talking about stuff that, that isn't supposed to be known. They say clearly what's happened there is, is Matthew has, has misunderstood this psalm. He's, he's taken it, he's gone back there, and he's found this little word parable, and he's thought, hey, there, there's a passage in the Old Testament about parables. Jesus is talking in parables. Let's just, let's just put this in my gospel because it'll, it'll be great. But clearly, I think they're wrong. And I, I would not call myself a New Testament scholar, but, but if I was, I would be part of the reason that there is an almost in that statement. New Testament scholars almost universally agree. Not all of them do. And, and, and I've stolen all this that I'm about to say from them. I think that, that these guys misunderstand both what's happening in Psalm 78 and what's happening in Matthew 13. 
And, and that's why they, they misunderstand what Matthew has done here. I think that what's happening in Psalm 78, which we read, and I read the whole thing so that we can really see this, is that what the psalmist is doing, the guy who, who's writing, who's speaking these things, is he is communicating stuff that is known, right? Our fathers have told us these things. That's what, that's what he's saying. But he's doing it in a way that's not known. He's talking about things that everybody is familiar with in a new way, in a different way. He's, he's, he's putting all this information together so that these people can see something that they haven't seen before. Think about it. What this guy does in this psalm is he, is he goes through the history of Israel. He talks about events that, that go as far back as the book of Genesis, all the way to, to events which happen in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Genesis was at the beginning of the Jewish Bible. Chronicles was at the end of the Jewish Bible. So he's talking about events which span the entire Hebrew Bible. Stuff that they would have known about. He he goes through God's acts of redemption. He talks about God choosing Israel, the the person. He talks about God parting the Red Sea. God leading them in the wilderness with the cloud and the pillar of smoke. He talks about God bringing forth water from the rock. God giving them manna. God giving them quail. God giving them the plagues in Egypt to deliver them from the hands of their enemy. He talks about God giving them the, the enemies in the land into their hand. He talks about them giving them the tents of these people who live in the land. He talks about God dwelling with his people in the land, in the temple. He talks about God choosing David. All these great things that he talks about. Everybody in Israel would have known about them. They weren't new. They're not unknown. They're not dark sayings. And he also talks about God's acts of judgment. Right? He talks about God judging them for their rebellion in the wilderness. He talks about God judging them for their rebellion in the land. All of these things that, that anyone in Israel would have known about. These aren't, these aren't secrets. But what he does is, is the way he talks about these things. And I, and I hope that you, you saw it a little bit as we read. Is that he, he talks about this pattern that comes up again and again and again in the people of Israel. You can't, you can't read the Old Testament and miss it. What happens is God's people are called by God to do something. And they do it for a while. And then they rebel against God. They reject God. God comes in. God punishes them. He promises redemption. Then they get back on track. They remember that that God is good. They do what he wants. And then they rebel. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's what they do. And that's what this guy is drawing out. He's, he's not drawing out this, this amazingly new thing that no one's ever heard about. He's, he's drawing out this pattern that these people should have seen in their interactions with God, that no matter, no matter what God does for them, they repeat it. They do it again and again and again. They, they rebel in the garden. They rebel uh, in Egypt. They rebel when they get out of Egypt in the wilderness. They rebel when they get in the land the first time. Then God sends them away, and then they rebel again. They rebel again and again and again and again and again, until ultimately we know that in the New Testament they reject Christ, the ultimate rebellion against God. So that's what's happening in Psalm 78. The, the entire purpose of Psalm 78 is to emphasize this kind of undeniable pattern of God's acts of redemption for his people. He is going to continue to act to redeem them. That's what we see in this psalm. doesn't matter how bad they rebel against him. He still redeems them. But what about Matthew 13, 35? 
He says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Those New Testament scholars say that Jesus is speaking these hidden things so that they remain hidden. I will utter hidden things since the foundation of the world so that they remain hidden. But that doesn't really make sense to me. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Why would you speak hidden things if you want them to stay hidden? You wouldn't. You would just shut up about it, not tell anyone. It's true. We, we can't deny the fact that earlier in Matthew 13, the purpose of the parables is to, to conceal information from the people. But here... In Matthew 13, 35, I think that what we see is that part of the purpose of the parables is to reveal information. He wants to use the parables so that some people in the crowds don't get what he's talking about. But he also wants people to get it. He wants his disciples to get it. He wants his disciples to understand the things that he's talking about. And so the purpose of the parables is to hide information from the people, but it's also to make known information to the people. So then what's the connection? What's, what's this, this fulfillment of prophecy stuff about? If, if Matthew 13, 35 is insisting that Jesus, when he speaks in parables, when he does things, when he acts in the world, he, he's, he's trying to reveal something to the people. And if Psalm 78 is about emphasizing this, this, this ongoing pattern of redemption of God's people, what is the connection between that and Jesus? Well, I kind of gave you the answer at the beginning. The answer is that Jesus is God's ultimate act of redemption for his people. Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, that is how God is ultimately going to solve the problem of this, this endless cycle of redemption and rebellion and judgment and punishment. That's how he's going to bring them out of it. That's how he brought us out of it. Through things like his, his life, his, his, his perfect life of obedience, his teaching, his preaching, his, his miracles, his healings, even his teaching in parables. It's through his, his death on the cross, paying the penalty for all of my sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future, including this rebellion that we read about in Psalm 78. It's through his, his resurrection, his demonstration of his power over death, his demonstration of God's vindication of both him and his sacrifice for us. Jesus is God's ultimate act of redemption. That's what we see in this passage. That's what we see as the connection between Psalm 78 and Matthew 13. We can't miss that. And the crazy thing about this is that I think what we see here is that Jesus doesn't just provide redemption for past rebellion. That's what we see in Psalm 78. God comes in, he steps into the lives of the people in Israel, and he provides redemption for, for their past rebellion. Jesus does that, but he does more than that for us. He, he provides us with the means to both avoid future rebellion, or if we still fail, he provides us with more redemption. He provides us with, with the way out of this cycle. That's why Jesus is God's ultimate act of redemption. But we have to answer the second question of what does it mean for us? Well, obviously, the fact that Jesus is God's ultimate act of redemption means a lot for us. At least it should. But we're just going to talk about two of those things tonight. The first thing that it should mean is that we should trust in Jesus. No matter whether we 
currently are trusting in Jesus or whether we are currently not trusting in Jesus, the answer is exactly the same. We need to trust in Jesus. We need to trust in God's answer to our problem of rebellion. We need to trust in his answer to our endless cycle of rejection. And Jesus is the only answer that we get to that. He's the only answer that means anything to that. And so if you're someone who isn't trusting in Jesus right now, or you've never started doing that, then that's something that you should start doing. Because the only other answer is to just keep doing what you've been doing and trying to find some way out of it on your own. And, and the great part about the good news of Christ is that we don't have to do anything because he's already done it for us. He's done the work. He is. It's not that he's, he's becoming or he will be God's ultimate act of redemption for us. He is God's ultimate act of redemption for us. That means the work's already been done for us and we don't have to do any of it. And so even if we're someone who, who is trusting in Jesus, we need to keep trusting in Jesus. We need to keep reminding ourselves and remembering what he's done for us and that it doesn't matter what we do. Well, it's not our work that matters. It's his work that matters. Jesus is God's ultimate act of redemption. We are not. But this also means a second thing for us. And this is a place where I feel like over and over again when we read the New Testament, it's really easy for us to take shots at the Jews and say, you know, they, they screwed this up, they got this wrong, they rejected Jesus, they killed Jesus, they did all this stuff bad. And they certainly did do a lot of stuff wrong. But one thing that they got right is, is this next thing. And we see this in, in Psalm 78. We see this in other Psalms. What they got right is the fact that it's in remembering what God has done for us. It's in remembering his past works of redemption for us that, that we have hope for what he's doing in the present and what he will do in the future. It's in remembering what God has done for us in the past that we can have faith and hope and confidence in what he's doing right now and what he will do in the future. And so tonight, it, it doesn't matter where we are in our lives right now. It doesn't matter whether we are happy, whether we are depressed, whether we are relaxed, whether we are stressed out, whether we are anxious and, and worryful about tomorrow or whether we are approaching the future with complete confidence. It doesn't matter where we're at. For all of us, it's in looking back at what God has done for us in the past that we can have hope and we can see and we can recognize what he's doing right now and what he will do tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. That's, that's what Matthew is trying to tell these people. Is that it's, it's, it's in looking at history like Psalm 78 does that, that we recognize all the things that God has done for us. And it's when we forget that that we start to panic about what's going on right now. Because think about your life. Think about all the things that got you to where you are right now. Think about some of those points where, where you were freaked out about how you were going to pay the bills or you were freaked out about how your kid was going to get better or you were freaked out about this or that or whatever. And no matter what you felt at the time, God always came through. He always brought about his redemption for us. And it's in, it's in remembering those things. How we quit worrying, we quit stressing, we quit trying to do it for ourselves today. And so tonight, 
even before we leave, we're going to do this. We're going to apply this sermon right now. And so, before we, we, we take the Lord's Supper together, we're going to take about 10 minutes. And this may make some of you uncomfortable, but I don't really care. We're going to break up into groups of like three to five people, six people. I mean, it's a lot easier because there's very few of us here tonight. And what we're going to do is we're going to take those 10 minutes, and I would ask you to share with your group a point in your life where you know that God intervened on your behalf a point that that you can look back at and have confidence in because you know God did something for you. And share that with your group so that that you're encouraged and so that they're encouraged. And then then use that as an example of how to keep doing that. And so break up into those groups and then in about 10 minutes I'm going to come back up and I'm going to pray and then we will take the Lord's Supper together and remembering again what he's done for us in the past.